So we are continuing our series, which we only have two more left in this series of red letter living. The red letter, um, referring to the red letters in many of our Bibles, are the words of Jesus, these words of life, these words that uh, apply to us despite the years and history that are between us and whenever he first spoke them. And red letter living refers to the type of life that these words should shape our life to be. They're both challenging, a punch in the gut sometimes, but also a truth of radical grace and love and what we'll see today of forgiveness and how adopting that kind of living, those, that kind of life spoken from the words of Jesus can actually transform us into the creatures that we were designed to be. Now, we did hear Ken, thank you Ken for reading our scripture this morning. We will be in Luke chapter 23 you want to begin turning there with Jesus on the cross, and we're going to be talking about a murder today. You know, we've always had a problem with murder as humans. It's a corrosiveness that's baked into us as kids with sticks, and then is meditated in us, in the worst of us, as adults with sticks filled with gunpowder. The very first time the Bible talks about murder is in the first pages of the Bible between two brothers. Now, you can pull a lot from that story, but just initially, at the surface, it insinuates that nobody is above it, and nobody is safe from it. Let me give you some scary statistics about murder. According to the United Nations uh, Global Survey, 464,000 murders will happen every single year. That's not deaths, that's specifically intentional murder, taking somebody's life intentionally. 464,000. Now, Americans take up the majority of that pie. 31% of those murders happen right here on our soil. 58% of females, both young and old, 58, over half of them, are murdered by a significant other or a family member, somebody they love and they trust and they know. 58% of women. And probably the scariest statistic of them all, 7% of the world's population said, if given enough money, they would consider murdering. 7%. That's over 500 million people said they could put a price tag on taking somebody else's life. And I would dare say that every single person in this room has gotten away with murder. Well, that was a statement. (laughs) Like how, wait, wait, how can you say that? How can you say I, we've gotten away with murder? Well, it's actually not me that says it. It's Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. We get that. We understand that. These aren't our red letters this morning, but this is our punch in the gut. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So according to Jesus, murder begins in the heart, not the hands. Murder is the devastating result of something left unchecked for far too long. And the bile of anger and contempt and judgment, it finally bursts under the pressure. And today, we are going to look at the greatest murder in human history. Because that is, in fact, what happened on Calvary. 
Jesus was murdered. Now it's true, Jesus freely gives his life, and nobody takes his life from him. But even Jesus will use a certain kind of phrase to predetermine what would happen to him, where he says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. They will kill him. They will murder him. So what I want to do today, looking at our verse, what we've been doing throughout this entire series, is I want us to work through this verse slowly dissecting it to fully understand what is happening here and why it matters to us today. We're going to uncover and unbury these verses uh, from familiarity, from assumptions that have been packed on top of them. And I want to challenge you to read these words from Jesus, these red letters, with fresh eyes this morning. So without further ado, let's read Luke 23, starting in verse 33. Let's set the context. Two others who were criminals were also led away to be executed with Jesus. When they came to the place called the Skull, or Golgotha, or Calvary, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And then Jesus said our words this morning, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his garments by casting lots. So let's look at this first part, the murder. They crucified him. There's supposed to be a why there. I'm just now noticing they crucified him. Now, as stated, I don't want us to water down any of this. We need to sit in the events that took place that day. An innocent man named Jesus was murdered. And he was murdered under false testimony and under false witness. This was a scheme that was plotted by men who were supposed to be the best of us. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes. And even whenever Jesus is presented to a Roman official pilot who has no reason to side with Jesus, even he can't find fault. This man is innocent. I don't see any reason why he should be crucified. And the only rebuttal that the crowd had was the piercing demand to crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. It no longer mattered why. Their eyes had turned red. They sought blood, specifically Jesus's, and they wanted him crucified. Now, crucifixion was not invented by the Romans, but it was perfected by them. It was invented by the Persians, actually. Generations and years before the Romans picked it up, the Persians actually believed that the earth was sacred. And so it wasn't right to taint the earth by killing people, specifically criminals, on it. So they found a way to elevate people in the air and kill them that way. Now this was adopted by many cultures, Egyptians, finally the Romans, who sadistically enjoyed it. In fact, they fine-tuned their methods so that it would bring about the most pain for the longest amount of time in the most public of formats. This is, by every definition, state-sponsored terrorism. The purpose of crucifixion, outside of removing the criminal, was to create terror in the mass of people so that everybody would fall in line. So after being gouged with a whip, thorns pressed into his skull, stripped of all of his clothes and dignity, Jesus carried a 75-pound 
patibulum, which is the cross beam of the cross. He would have carried it through the public, up a hill, and to his own stake that was planted in the ground for him, the stake he would be mounted on top of. At this point, already depleted of blood and energy, Jesus would have been laid on that cross beam, and railroad-sized stake irons would be driven through his wrists into the wood. Yeah, it would have been the wrist, not the hands. The hands are too fragile. They would have torn under the weight of a person. So a lot of times in Hebrews, when they refer to hand in the language, they're referring to the entirety of the forearm up. So a stake likely would have been driven right between the bones, right here on the wrist. And those stakes wouldn't have gone in in one single blow. They have to pierce the skin, maybe even a bone, to get to the other side, into the wood, deeper and deeper, with each bludgeoning blow sending shocks of pain through Jesus' body. And then finally, Jesus would be hoisted upward and mounted to the stake, where he would have to pull against the weight of those stakes to catch breath in his lungs, only to fall back down into the pain of it all. Now, at the point of Jesus' crucifixion, Scholars say that about 30,000 Judeans were crucified this exact same way. And we're talking about just the Jewish nation. We're not talking about all the other cultures that the Romans crucified. But 30,000 people like Jesus, from the same culture, saying the same language, died just this way. And now here hangs another amongst the many for the Romans. And if they couldn't mock him any further, they'll just say this is the proclaimed king of those Jews. But no victim of human injustice was ever more innocent than Jesus, then or today. They murdered Jesus, a man who did nothing but uphold the values of God, who loved the unlovable, they murdered him. Jesus died a guilty man's death, though he did no wrong. And Jesus did, in fact, die six hours of dying on that cross. And in that six-hour span, Jesus uttered seven short statements. Some scholars say that these statements of a dying man are like looking at a window into God's heart. While Jesus was doing the greatest work, he was saying the greatest words, you could say. And at the forefront of that significant seven is our verses this morning. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. So we looked at the murder. Let's look at the mercy. You know, the tense of that verb, forgive them. In the original language, this is written as an ongoing verb. Now, what that means in the context of the story is that Jesus very likely could have been praying this prayer, not just in this moment, but throughout the entire crucifixion. In fact, this could have started all the way back at the trial, where he's being convicted of things under false testimony, things that are not true. People are coming against him, and he is saying, whenever the gavel comes down, Father, forgive them. As they're tearing flesh off of his back, whipping him in a public square, he could be saying, Father, forgive them. As he's carrying his 
murder device through the town. People are mocking and spitting in his face. Father, forgive them. As the nails are being driven into his wrists and he's hoisted onto the cross, Father, forgive them. As all of his friends and people who were there along with him and said they would be with him till the end are fleeing and running away, Father, forgive them. As the thieves dying next to him are mocking, Father, forgive them. We don't know all where he said it, but he was saying it. Forgive them, forgive them, forgive them. Certainly not the reaction that's commonplace in my life, is it? I mean, just put yourself, if you can, into the place of Jesus. How would you react? How do you think you would actually Would you be begging for your life, offering any hidden secrets that you have, truth or lies, just to salvage your freedom? Would you be lashing out in anger, friend or foe, it doesn't matter, you're just raining down curses on people? Are you silently submitting to the pain, giving up and giving in? Well, while you might or might not be doing these things, Jesus was forgiving the whole time. Now, it is true, it's likely crucifixion or any other major attack is not in your, your line of sight. We live pretty safe lives here. So, to do the best we can, let's try to bring this to home a little bit. Today, you are going to lunch. You're driving on your way there, and a jacked-up pickup truck comes in way too fast and pulls out in front of you and just keeps going, completely unaware that you're even there. You even have to slam on your brakes a little bit not to hit them. What's going through your mind? How are you reacting? Are you praying? I know I'm praying, but it's not the prayer of Jesus. (laughs) I'm praying, Father, let there be an officer right behind that bush up there. That would be nice. (laughs) Father, four flat tires and not a spare in the car. Amen. Thank you, right? Jesus is forgiving. You get to the restaurant, and uh, you're with your spouse, and maybe you're eating with a couple of your friends, and your spouse, unintentionally, but they're, they're nagging on you in front of your friends about that embarrassing thing that you always do, and it's starting to hurt a little bit. How do you react? What do you do? The meal comes to a close, and you're starting to get the check, and you overhear a conversation happening. The table next to you, a bunch of young people visiting from out of town, and they're talking about politics and things happening and gun laws, and man, we should just take away all the guns because there's countries that don't have guns, and look how much better they are. How are you, how are you doing? What's going through your mind? You leave the restaurant, go out the door, and two grown men are holding hands walking into the restaurant. How are you doing now? We are so easily offended, angered, hardened by what we witness and experience in the world. Jesus was forgiving. How do I know? How do I know how Jesus would react in those moments? Because while Jesus, his life was literally dripping from his body, he looked at the people inflicting the pain and said, Father, forgive them. This is just who Jesus was. It's as if Jesus knew that holding on to anger or contempt, that it was like holding on to a burning coal. It would just hurt him in the process, and he needed to give something away. 
Other, another man that recognized this is a man by the name Nelson Mandela. Now, it's likely many of you have heard this story, but it's worth telling again. While trying to end segregation and human rights uh, and, and bring about human rights in South Africa, uh, Nelson Mandela was uh, put in prison for the entirety of his life. This was his sentence. He was sentenced to a six-by-six jail cell. I've actually been to Robben Island. I've been to that jail cell. It is, in fact, six-by-six. Six. There's nothing but a pathetic blanket on the ground and a small table that Nelson would kneel down on to write his autobiography and other great speeches. Now, the cruelty of the prisoners is almost unheard of. But one simple example is guards would force the prisoners to dig a hole all day, only till the very end of the day, then fill the hole back up. Just to show you the cruelty, that was extended specifically to Mandela, who all of the guards knew who he was. In one of these occasions, Mandela was told to dig the hole, lay in the hole where the soldiers proceeded to urinate on him. 27 years. 27 years in that condition. I'm 29 years old. 27 years of his life. And he told... he. He chose not to hang on to it. Here's what he said on that specific occasion. He says, As I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew that if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I would still be in prison. We get shocked when unbelievers live and act like unbelievers. We get paralyzed, offended, up in arms, worried. We allocate more energy worrying outwardly that we lose sight of what's happening inwardly. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus was consistent in his character from the moment he began his ministry all the way to his last breath of forgiveness. To the woman caught in prostitution, your sins are forgiven. To the paralytic that nobody seemed to want to have anything to do with, you are forgiven, and to the people killing him, driving the stakes into his arms, hoisting and mocking him, Father, forgive them. This is just who our Jesus was. And did you notice these words are a prayer? They're a prayer upward, not a statement outward. Jesus isn't talking to the crowd. He's not talking to the Romans. He's not speaking to the thieves dying on the, each side of him. He is praying to his Father in heaven. At the worst of times, he goes to God first. Now, isn't that a good model for us? If where Jesus, the Son of God, goes to God first, where should we be going? And whenever he does go to the Father, he doesn't go to him in anger. He goes to him in forgiveness. He doesn't go to God in judgment. He goes to him in forgiveness. Jesus stayed connected to heaven even while he suffered here on earth. And this wasn't a forgiveness on Jesus' part that he's asking for. Jesus didn't have anything to be forgiven for. He was innocent of all things. Notice what the prayer is for. It's an intercessory prayer for his transgressors. That's a lot of Christian words, so let's use the Bible to understand what that means. Romans chapter 8, verse 34, says that Jesus is at the right hand of God and he is interceding for us. He's talking on our behalf. He's standing in our place. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, says that Jesus is our advocate 
for the Father. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, we learn that Jesus always lives to intercede for us. The reason Jesus said this prayer was not for him, it was for us. He did it because we needed him to do it. Humanity's greatest need was God's greatest accomplishment, forgiveness. And we all need it. We need it from our Heavenly Father. We need it from our earthly fathers. We need it from the people in our neighbors or our jobs that have hurt us. We need it from people in this very room who have let us down. Whenever I was a boy, I've told this story before, but when I was a boy and I lit the back pasture of my home on fire from laziness is all you can call it. And as my, I was sitting in the bathtub and my dad was running cold water over my burnt legs. I was begging, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and the only salve that I needed was to hear my father say, I forgive you. And that's what some of you need to hear today too. When Jesus prays this prayer, Father, forgive them. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, the Father says, I forgive you. So make it personal when you read this verse. Put your name in there. Father, forgive Peyton. Father, forgive Ethel. Father, forgive David. Father, forgive Sarah. Father, forgive all of us. For we don't know what we are doing. Which leads us to the last. We looked at the murder. We looked at the mercy. Let's look at the motive. Because... The problem is, I do know what I am doing. And so do you. (laughs) Whenever you're sinning and living a life against what God's purposes are for you. And these soldiers and the Pharisees and the crowd, they know exactly what they're doing with their involvement in the crucifixion. So what is Jesus talking about here? Like the reason Judas took his life is because he knew what he did. The reason Jesus or Peter wept is because he knew what he did in denying Jesus. We know what we are doing, so what is Jesus talking about? Forgive them for they do not know. Well, it's true. In part, while the soldiers were killing a man, they didn't know the identity of the man they were killing. It's true. And it's true, while the crowd knew the identity of the man, they didn't recognize the enormity of the crime that they were committing. In part, that's true. But here's the Here's the raw reality. Ignorance does not mean innocence. It just doesn't. Despite what you want to believe and what you hope to feel is true, try it next time you get pulled over and see if ignorance equals innocence. If you get caught going 70 here on State Route 60 and the officer pulls you over and he comes to your door, he's going to say something like, do you know what the speed limit is? And you could say, oh, officer, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what the speed limit is. And he's not going to say, most likely, at least my experience, (laughs) he's not going to say, oh, I'm sorry. It's all right. Learn a better next time and walk away. No. What's he going to do? He's going to write you a big fat ticket, and then he's going to say, now you know. (laughs) Now you know. And unfortunately, this ignorance is an exit strategy for many people. 
For many people that might be listening to me right now, you may think you can play that ignorance card all the way to judgment. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know. We claim to be free thinkers on this earth because it's easy. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. We claim to be agnostic. If you don't know what agnostic is, it's simply saying, I believe there's something out there, but I don't necessarily want to change anything to figure out what. I've come to believe that agnosticism is the laziest version of unbelief. That you believe something is out there, but it's not worth changing anything in your life to seek it. Ignorance does not equal innocence. Now you know. If you're listening to me right now, you know enough to make a decision of some kind. Any indecision is still a decision that you are making. There is no longer room for us to say, I don't know. We get so worried about the person off in the jungle who may never hear the words of Jesus that we lose sight of where we are and the people around us who do have a chance. We have the full story of God's redemption plan. We can see the enormity of the crime of the cross and the enormity of the crime of sin in light of the cross. And I believe Jesus is still saying this intercessory prayer for us. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing, but how are you responding to that prayer? What will it take for you to be like the centurion at the cross that finally, after a lot of things having to happen, darkness in the middle of the day, the temple curtain being ripped open, finally he came to the realization, maybe it was the Son of God that we actually did murder today. What's it going to take for you to come to that realization and to actually be willing to give your life to it? What is God's forgiveness like? For one thing, it is perfect. Like all attributes, it is greater and more powerful than any evil that exists in this world. And it is extended to all people despite the magnitude of the sin that they face against it. Prophet Daniel tells us a little bit about this. Just read these words from Daniel. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving. You could put a period there, but there's an awesome disclaimer on it. Even though we have rebelled against him. Notice who's doing the rebelling? We are. Who has the overflowing forgiveness? He does. The prophets talk about this all over the place compassion and forgiveness of our God. But we need to be careful. We need to be careful not to assume that just because God's forgiveness is perfect, that that means it is easy. Because it cost him everything. And although it is freely given to us, Paul calls it like a gift given in Ephesians chapter 2. It was purchased at the infinite cost of God's Son. And you and I may recoil at the idea of displaying that type of radical forgiveness to those in our life. How do I do that? What does that look like? Well, ultimately, it needs to cost you something. Forgiveness is in a form of suffering. And Jesus paid the ultimate suffering, the ultimate form of forgiveness, so that you have nothing against it. I want to end with one quote from a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
So if you've been at this church for any number of time, we quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer often, World War II, he was a theologian. He was a part of an assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler, which failed, ultimately leading to his martyrdom, dying a professing believer and dying for the cost of Christ. And here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer has to say about forgiveness, a man who had plenty of reason to hold resent in his heart. He says this, If you've ever really forgiven somebody, forgiven some real wrong, all forgiveness is suffering. If you say, I forgave and I didn't suffer, it wasn't really that serious of a wrong. But if you have ever really truly been wronged and you have forgiven it, then you have suffered because all forgiveness is a form of suffering. If somebody has wronged you deeply, there is an indeliable sense of debt, an injustice, a feeling that you can't shrug off. And once you sense this deep injustice, this debt, there are only two things that you can do. One is that you can make the perpetrator pay. You can find ways to make the perpetrator suffer and pay down the debt. Or option two, you can forgive. And I hope that in the light of what we've read about today, between the murder, the mercy, the motive, about what Jesus did for you on the cross, the forgiveness he took on himself in this form of suffering, that you'll recognize that the only real option you have as a follower of him is option number two. Despite the wrong, despite the hurt, the resentment you hold in your heart, the only option we have is the example that has been given to us, radical forgiveness. Let's pray about that as we close out this morning. Father God, I don't even know what to come to you and say. I feel in my heart all of the pain that I've caused on people all the ways that I've hurt and brought in brokenness into this world, and yet I feel like I'm the one who needs to be forgiven. That people need to come to me and forgive for the wrongs that they've done against me. But Father, I am so misguided if I think that I am innocent. Father, we need the forgiveness that, that your Son prayed on our behalf. And God, we need to forgive radically the people in our life, the people who know us, that have hurt us, that are intentionally uh, pulling themselves against us, and the people who don't know us. Father, the people who are not believers, the people who say they're believers or not walking the walk, the people who have hurt us or were offended by or angered by, Father, we have no reason, no reason to hold resentment against them or anger or bitterness. Jesus, you paid the ultimate price. You suffered the greatest amount so that we could be forgiven and the people who were holding hurt and pain against could also be forgiven. So Father, it turns to us and what we do leaving today is the way of life that we learn from these red letters. Is it a way that Hold on to our pride and our ego? 
Or God, is it a way of letting go of the ways we've been hurt and been turned against and God fully forgiving because that's the only option that we have? Radical forgiveness. Father, I pray for wisdom and clarity for everybody who hears my voice, for myself included, as we navigate this world of pain and hurt and we try to live like the light and the salt of this world. God, we do it through your spirit who is found in us. And we give you this prayer with everything that we have in the name of Jesus who paid that ultimate price. In his holy name we pray. Amen.